Greetings, Amigops and Top Teners everywhere. This is Mike from Top Ten with Kyle and Mike. I am joined this week, as I am every week, by our lovely, our bearded, our handsome co-host, Kyle. Now, this week, we'll be talking about a topic which both of us know. This is one of those very special weeks where we both know the topic ahead of time. Importantly, Kyle will be the guiding force behind this week's topic, which I know many of you fans out there like. So we're going to talk about this topic. We're going to debate it vigorously. By the end of the episode, we will have a definitive top 10. So Kyle, why don't you tell the listeners what we're talking about this evening? All right, Mike, as you know, as our listenership know, as the country knows, we are hot on the heels of the release of Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Warner Brothers. I mean, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Uh, I'm sorry. Come on. You, I'm sorry. I, can I just, I want to note for the listeners, so the, <laughs> the entirety of our interactions thus far, which is a rarity on this pod about this topic, is I texted Kyle and said, hello, Kyle, I have seen the film. Have you seen the film? He says, Michael, I have not seen the film. What are your thoughts? I say, I don't want to spoil it. My thoughts are positive. End of communication on this topic for like a week. One Kyle texts me back, says, I have seen the film. I did not care for the film. (laughs) Let's discuss. (laughs) So this is where we're at. Now, I also want to double back by something I just said. Let me be very clear. We don't discuss these ahead of time. But typically, the conversations that we have are things that have been simmering in sort of the back of our ongoing friend discussion for years. <laughs> this is a this is a really like really virgin territory here. We have not talked about this. No, this is going to be fresh. So yeah, but we also we we know enough that we kind of are coming at this from two different perspectives. And yes, for, and for that fire and ice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm John, but the. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Danny. <laughs> the, oh, should we? Ugh. Or should? No, never mind. But no, probably not. No, 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 no. But as a result, we couldn't do like the best things about Crimes of Grindelwald. Yes, or yeah, that's a really things. good thing to point out. We could. Kyle was like, "All right, so let's do the top ten worst things." About it. I was like, "No, let's do the top ten best things about it." So we've come to a slightly different arrangement. What we believe is. I think is going to be an effective compromise is we're just going to be talking about all of the unanswered questions that the crimes of Grindelwald leaves us with at movie two in this series. So of five of five. So, uh, so (laughs) for now, (laughs) it's probably going to be seven or eight. Yeah. So, so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to talk about, Things that are left unanswered, or I've like, I've included in here just like, just some questions. They don't have to be like plot related necessarily, just some questions I have. Yes. So there's a, there's a good segment on a podcast that you and I both adore, which is the rewatchables that they do unanswerable questions. And I kind of assumed that at least some portion of this, this evening's proceedings would be reminiscent of the unanswerable questions because there were a few. Half of this podcast is going to be me poking holes in this movie in question format, and the other half is going to be exploring some of the great things about this movie and talking about where this franchise might be going. I think it'll be an effective mix of both, and we'll naturally get to talk about the things we did and didn't like and have kind of a little bit of a debate over it. So, Yeah, so I think I just wanted to say two more things before we dive in. One is I think we probably all know what number one is going to be, or at least I feel pretty confident what number one's going to be. So... We'll kind of burst the bubble of that now and say, yes, what you think is number one, <laughs> probably. Kyle, is that fair to say? Yeah. 
Okay, so we all we all who have seen the movie, so big spoiler. Oh alert. yeah, this is a this huge spoiler alert, flashing red spoiler alert. If you haven't seen this movie, what you think is number one is is going to be number one. But the other thing is, I just want to get a quick. Did you like this movie? Just real quick. We'll, we'll get into the details. Give me like your score, A to F. A to F. Yeah. This movie with, with pluses and minuses. This movie for me was probably a D. Oh my goodness. Wow. I uh we'll get into it. I a D. I really it didn't it's not an F. It didn't fail at what it okay. set out to do. Can it can it what is the highest? Okay, let me ask. What is the highest this can be if movie 3 does some stuff? No, like, no, no. No, stuff no, 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 no. Okay. We're already getting into it. Don't even come at me with this stuff. We why are we talking about Fantastic Beasts 3? Like this movie should exist, should be able to exist in a vacuum. Like, I, I hate this argument. People say this about, uh, The Force Awakens. Well, you know, it's, it's a lot better if you, if you, if you watch it in context. But listen, that might be true. But a movie as a unit, I should be able to watch a movie and start to finish just be entertained. And now I, I utterly agree. And I think that that imposes a, a certain ceiling on this movie. But the question remains, I hear you, your soapbox, I've noted, I've noted your big picture argument, but do you think that this can slide up if some of these unanswerable or unanswered questions are answered to your satisfaction in the next movie? I don't, I really don't think so. I think. Okay. It will always feel like a missed opportunity for you. I think that that will make the next movie really good. I think. Yeah. I think it might affect how I view the series as a whole when we're done with this whole thing. But Mm -hmm. as, as far as this movie goes, I don't, I don't really think there's a ton of room for redemption here. Okay. But, but I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. That's fair. I'll give you mine. Uh, I'll be, I'll give it a B. Okay. I thought there were some really high highs. There were some really interesting lows, but I think <laughs> some really high highs. Okay. We'll, we'll, All right. We'll, we'll talk about Let's it. Let's get rolling. Number 10. This is what, this is a carryover from the first movie that yeah. didn't get answered in this. I'm sure it will be at some point. In the first movie, we we hear tell that Newt was expelled from Hogwarts. Ah. Having to do something with a, a beast. But we don't know what, and we still don't know what. This movie did not answer that question for us. There will be more Newt backstory, I think, going forward. And I'm looking forward to that. So do you think that they've hinted enough that they have to tell us? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And this, you think this will be a Dumbledore related reveal? Like it'll be really tied up in Dumbledore and we'll figure out why he believes in Newt so deeply? I, okay, so my suspicion, and we're venturing into the, the land of, what does Dumbledore say? We are now venturing yes. into the, uh, the realm of, of guesswork or yeah. whatever. So, okay, so Newt is a wizard who owns a wand and practices magic at a mm-hmm. high level. Yes. Which he should not have been able to do if he was expelled from Hogwarts, a la our friend Hagrid. Yes. Who had his wand snapped over someone's knee. So somewhere in here, there's a story of why Newt was expelled, why he got his wand back. I'm sure Dumbledore was involved in that process. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that'll probably have something to do with with why they seem to have such a tight bond. But I also, I want to introduce a, a sort of a question I'm probably going to be asking you a lot here. Which is, for this one, what percent possibility do you 
put on that this is just a plot mistake. Like the him having a wand and doing magic. Because that was a question that I found myself asking a lot in this movie. Yes. Which was not so much like, what's, what the hell is the plan here? It was like, is there just not a plan? So for this one, what percentage possibility do you assign like that's just kind of a mistake? 10%. Yeah, that's what I would say. I think that they have a a very well, and the fact that we're already seeing flashbacks of his time at Hogwarts, leads me to believe that they're going to go into this in in pretty great detail. And I think it'll probably involve Letta in some capacity. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure we'll get to her more. Yeah, that's an unanswered question that I would like to have answered. Yeah, that's one I would, I'm interested to see it resolved. So number nine, towards the end of the movie, this is a little, a little thing I actually, I really liked. So right before Letta jumps into Grindelwald's fire, or like basically sacrifices herself. For some reason. Yeah. <clears throat> she looks back at Newt and his brother, uh, uh, what's his face? Yeah, Theseus. Theseus, and she says, I love you. And it's the, it's, I love the way it's shot because Theseus is in front of Newt. It's not entirely clear that he knows that Newt's behind him, but Newt's looking over his shoulder right at her. And my question, and I'm glad that it's a question, I don't really know who she's talking to. Kyle, here's the problem. The best thing about this unanswered question, as of right now, is that it's unanswered, which I believe is what you're getting at there. I feel confident, beyond confidence, that this question will be ground into the dust (laughs) and answered so thoroughly and so literally (laughs) that there will be no question by the end of this series. What possibility do you assign to that? That it just, it's so, so obvious by the end of these movies. There's no question. There's some scene in a train station after everybody's dead. Zero percent chance this goes unanswered. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> which, which is a bummer because you know it would be cool. Yeah. Is if An she was actually. question. Yeah, what is this? This was it. And we just like, well, yeah. we don't know. <laughs> That's life. No, oh, he'll never know. He'll have to live with that for a while. But ask any mystery writer who's ever tried to pull that move. Yeah. People really don't like that. Like people, you, I believe you would. Yeah. Because I think you're a student no, I, of the form and you're a, a, you have a complex way of approaching these things. It would gnaw away at a lot of people and they'd get really mad if they never answered this. Yeah. It's too bad. But for, in this moment, this yes. unanswered question is one I'm glad was posed. Yeah. It was a good moment. On the opposite end of the spectrum of, <laughs> Ones that I think it was probably just a mistake or just poor, either poor or lazy writing. The the Jacob can fund his charm thing. Did this bother you as much as it bothered me? How casually we were performing the can fund his charm? No, how casually we discarded like an entire universe's canon on how can fund his charms are performed and work that like... This particular Confundus charm just happened to only erase bad memories. And since his memories of the first movie's events were positive in general, so he didn't forget them. Like, when, where is there any precedent? Not only where is there precedent for it, but we have tons of precedent in seven books that this would, this is not how this, ha- this is not how this works. Right? So, okay. So maybe I need a memory jog. My recollection from the end of the first one is that 
there's that rain, mm-hmm. right? From it's Frank the Thunderbird. Yeah, causes the rain, and that causes everybody to forget what the hell's going on. All right, if I remember correctly, no, no, you, I'm sure you do. The source of the magic is still a confundus charm. It's just that they need a Thunderbird to to send, like, basically relay the power of the charm to a wide number of people. I think you're right about that. So this is still work. So we're saying fundamentally, this is still a confundus charm, right? And so, like, and if and if there were some other piece of lore about Thunderbirds that said they have, they can cause storms that cause people to forget painful memories, we'd be having a different conversation. It seems like they're just. Like, well, you know, how do we um get this muggle guy back into the picture? And it felt really, really lazy and it really took me out of it. I hated it. So here's so here's what I think is interesting about books versus movies. Ignoring the new movies for a second, if you take a look at the Harry Potter movies, so I've been rewatching the Harry Potter movies, um, the original eight, and what you find is on the page, the magic is often very subtle and complicated because the form allows for it. The movies, it is less so. So, like, memory modification, nonverbal spells, wandless magic, all these things that a- allow a spell to be partially done or kind of done or done incorrectly. Like, Patronus Charms, for example, I was just watching The Order of the Phoenix and being very annoyed. Very annoyed to see all of these characters just shooting out these full corporeal Patronuses with no issue. The problem is the movie needs to kind of clean it up and make it easier because that's the only way to to make it work. But at least with those ones, we have the books to go back on and say, ah, this is just a movie trick. This one, and this is not my own point. This came up on Binge Mode. They were pointing out that at least with the first ones, there's a difference where you can still say, yeah, but we still have the books. Yeah. Whereas this, we don't still have the books on stuff like that. I think I would feel, I would feel like this was necessary movie magic if I had read the book where this happened in a much subtler and better explained way. Does that make sense to you? Uh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I think the reason it bothers me is because why not have, like, wouldn't it have been so easy to say, well, Queenie, having a little crush on this muggle, cast a shield charm and confunded him yeah. kind of secretly to make him think that he'd forgotten this stuff and then just went back and undid it later. Like, why not do that? It just felt like very, um, I don't know, very haphazard. And, and I, I didn't care for it. So, like, what's the question here? I don't know. Like, the, the unanswered question is, like, why? Is there, yeah, like, is there a difference in that particular confundus charm or, like, is there a, is there something, we're missing because the that really stuck in my craw. It, like, and that happened really early on, and it put me in kind of yeah. a bad mood. I'll admit. As a final added note on this topic, I want to remind you how weird and confused the application of the Imperious Curse and the Confundus Charm became by the end of the original eight movies. Like, if you recall, when they go into Gringotts mm. uh, in Seven Part One and. They perform the Imperious Curse, which in the books is this, it's like this big moment where Harry is performing an unforgivable curse and is supposed to really mean something. And he feels that warmth flowing down his arm. And you get this whole description where he feels like he's controlling somebody and he doesn't like it. In the movie, instead, it's this goblin sniffs the air and like goes, ah. Right. 
and so I think the sense that they had to represent something in a movie that was tough to represent already as viewers, our, our memory and our recollection of what these different charms do that are like, at least theoretically in the same family has become pretty confused. So I think as viewers, this only confuses it further. Well, in the same movie, when Newt and Jacob go into that, um, like basically the French version of Diagon Alley and they go through that statue, yeah. or maybe it's Tina, like she has to, that one of them confunds the guard and he like is confused. Like they're, yes. it's just like a really, it feels like they're mixing stuff up. I don't know. I just, it's kind of unclear what they're all, what those different pieces of magic do. So whatever. Yeah. I'm with you. The magic matters. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, right? Like, the fact that, like, we've just done four podcasts on this stuff, like, we care about the details of this universe. Yeah. And so do, everyone does. Like, people are really into it. And like, it feels, that it just, it just unsettled me that it didn't seem like they were paying as much attention yeah. to it as we were. But well, I think, I, I think you and I both fall into the same camp, which is that we are detail oriented, but we're not pricks. I don't, I don't think. Maybe we are. But I think that I, I, I think maybe even me more than you, I'm pretty fine with letting stuff like this roll. Cause I don't feel as attached to some of that. I'm pretty fine with screwing a couple things up here and there as long as you're getting the bigger picture right. Where I run into trouble with some of these things is when I feel like, and you said this perfectly before, it feels like the, I'm being taken out of the illusion. Like I feel as though I'm falling out of the moment and that's not what I want. Yeah. I, and I'm like, you just said, I'm super willing to suspend my disbelief. That's yeah. part of what makes the movies I love and so much And suspend your suspension of disbelief. You're like, that's, you're, yeah. you're fine with accepting the rules of the game. Right. Yeah. Or accepting the suspension of the rules of the game as long as it serves some. I would give this one a 100% chance of remaining unanswered. I think this is just yeah. something that slipped through the cracks. Yeah. Number seven is one that I don't care even a little bit about, but is unanswered and makes me wonder about the nature of magic. So I thought I would bring it up. So our friend Yusuf, the guy who's supposed to be killing mm. Credence or so he believes. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, don't, like, I don't know what was happening like, here. Why is this guy in this movie? Yeah, that's. I want to go off on the sidebar once you get your first thought out because I I have a related thought. It's moving past that, you could yeah. have removed this character entirely from this movie and it would have made it n- not an iota of difference. But whatever. My question is, and I, I, it's an interesting question, I guess. If you, I is, think I know what your question's going to be, and I like really? it. So I here's a, here's what I'm wondering: If you make an unbreakable unbreakable vow to yep. kill a man's yep. most loved person, and find out that the person you thought was that person is already dead, is he yep. now obligated by this vow to kill a different person? Like, how does this how is this unbreakable vow resolved? Yeah. I'm so interested in that, and that is exactly what I thought you were going to say, and I hoped this would come up. I hope, beyond hope, and I believe, this one will remain unspoken, because I think that the genius of JK's magical system is that it doesn't over-explain. I think when she gets into problems is when she over-explains, and when she's at her best, it's when she kind of leaves things a little bit vague and a little bit messy, as we were saying earlier. And I think the world in which the unbreakable vow depends upon the meaning of the speaker and the context is a better world for us to live in. 
So I like the idea that it doesn't really pass on. It sort of, it adapts to what they meant. Right. And since the thing that he meant is no longer possible, he's relieved. Is That, to me, feels the most consistent with the world that she's put together. That's that's my feeling, is that I think, if I were to say how I think this magic works, I think intention matters, and I, I like to think that that's how it works here. I, I, I would tend to, I would say the same thing. A, a tangential question I have is, let's say, like, what, like, why the sense of urgency? Because my question is, if you make an unbreakable vow to kill someone, like, when does it become apparent that you can't kill that person? Like, is he afraid... Is he afraid that Credence is going to die in some other way, thus yeah. making it impossible for him to fulfill his vow? Like, what's and the at t- which point does at which point does that then mean he broke the unbreakable vow and then he's dead? Right, and that's and the I find that magic really interesting, but I especially like it in its mystery. Yeah, I'm, fi- I'm and to be clear, I'm fine with this remaining nebulous yeah. like. And maybe wizards don't even understand case, it. Case kind of case specific. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's I think it's an interesting question that arises out of a situation that is, in my opinion, just terrible, terrible writing. And Yeah. It, and may, I don't know, maybe there's some long term plan for him in this series, but he just doesn't like he's just he's boring. Like he's only there he's the um He's the ex- he's the plot character in Chris Nolan movies. Exposition, make exposition. Oh my yeah. god! Like in the, any movie where you have to have a character stand there for probably three minutes of screen time and just say, "Ah, but my father was his mistress and this and this and that," and then someone says, yeah. "What about this?" He's like, "Ah!" It was it was like, yeah. "God, can we move this along?" So here's so here's my big. This is my tangential point that. I think this is the right time to introduce it because of what you've just said. And I will be bringing this back up. My biggest unanswerable question for this whole movie is why JK as the writer thought that this was the best way to get these characters to do these things. Because I believed, and this can't, I, when I first watched this, it was, there were so many individual moments that I liked that I wasn't struck by how problematic the way they're threaded together is. Now, having rewatched it, so I've seen it twice now, the initial joy of those great moments that I really liked, it, you know, it just naturally kind of wears off a little bit. And so the cracks of why these things were put together the way they were showed a little bit more. And this whole Lita, Corvus, Yusuf thing, to me was not the best way at all to get a couple of interesting characters to do interesting things. Because I actually, hot take here, I loved the scene on the boat, whatever boat this was. I thought that that scene of watching that white cloth of that baby sink down was so effective. It was so interesting. And for me as a viewer, required... Literally nothing more. Because I could see that scenario, and I've heard people disagree, but I, I, a little girl switching out a baby because the baby's really annoying is a thing that could happen. It's, it's a little bit kooky, but it's a thing that could happen without any magic, without any family history. 
And the girl then being haunted by that because it caused the death of the baby, haunting that, haunting her for the rest of her life, that could happen and requires nothing more. So what, what we have here is a really interesting scenario that I thought was well done, which was then connected in numerous strange and unnecessary ways to a larger story. That to me is the Yusuf problem, which is that Yusuf was an interesting character. His mother's tale, it clearly was intending to bring in some tones of race and gender, and I think temporarily did so in an interesting way. Because for me as a viewer, maybe say, oh, this is interesting. We're looking at the relationship between a white man and a black woman at a time in culture and history when those relationships were especially fraught. I wonder what element in the magical world magic introduced into those relationships. Oh, God, were wizards involved with these institutions? Blah, 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 blah. Interesting questions. Didn't need this story. Could have been an interesting question, I suppose, without introducing all of this extra complexity that fucked up the plot. I think, yeah, I, I think that a lot of it was probably done in order to orchestrate a fulfilling kind of twist or revelation in that that crypt scene and i just i just don't i just don't think it paid off particularly well because it didn't need to it had nothing to do with anything like because you're exactly right like you could have the same kind of reveal just by showing a girl switching a baby i i don't know i i just thought that in a movie with as many moving parts and i like i applaud the ambition of having as many moving parts as it did but I, I just think they went a little too far. And as a result, some of the parts end up feeling tacked on. And that that's that character for me. And especially where you stake a lot of the movie's emotional weight on those couple things that I never was going to care as much about. Yeah. I will come right back to the Lita question. I think it would have been, and I get it, this isn't what they were trying to do, but Newt is is clearly or was clearly in love with this girl. His brother is now engaged to her. Big part of his life. He's clearly a guy who doesn't interact well with other people. If he finds out that this girl who clearly has had a very difficult life, who's a sad, quiet, withdrawn person, who clearly grew up in difficult circumstances, who felt like an outsider at Hogwarts, he finds out that this happens. That is the climax of a really good movie. Yeah. Like a really good movie. Yeah, and that's to me, my, that's my broader complaint about this series is what could be more interesting if you wanted to make this the Dumbledore show, which is acceptable. What could be more interesting than a boy being in love with another boy and having this friend, boyfriend, friend, whatever they ended up being, we still don't really know, turn out to be one of the most evil people who's ever been? I, I don't know. That's interesting enough for me. Man, that's interesting enough. I don't need all this other stuff. I agree. I, I, I think a, a, just a general bigger problem of this movie is that they're trying to keep their feet squarely in both of these worlds. I like, yeah. they didn't full send on the Dumbledore stuff and we'll get to more of this, but yeah, like there's enough here. Like we don't need this. I think is yeah. what you're getting at. And, and I agree with that. Let's, yeah. let's get into a not top big three. tangent. Sorry, but it's just, no, 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 no. It's very Yusuf important. Is, Yusuf is such a good encapsulation. No, that's, it's basically problems. the, it's the crux of the movie's problems. Like that's, it's worth spending time on that. Cause I think yeah. that's a big part of it for me for the not top three. I did three questions that this movie answered. <laughs> <laughs> what is the title? 
<laughs> so, so that's one of them. One of them is after the first movie, we joked about it on one of our pods. We were like, who the fuck are these characters? Like, what are their fucking names? And I do know their names now. This movie was so, they must have read How to Win Friends and Influence People because every time anyone addressed anybody, it was by first name. Like, Tina, 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 Queenie, Queenie, Queenie. Yeah. Like, they, like, I, I forgot be- all of their names. <laughs> I believe very, very much that this was extremely intentional in order to get people to remember their names a little bit better this time around. And it was effective. Mm-hmm. I remember their names. I so, do, too. So, number one, question answered. What are the characters' names? We know. <laughs> number two. <laughs> That's my favorite. Yeah. Number two is... We've heard of the famous Grindelwald prison escape in the books a number of times. How did he do it? We saw it. It was awesome. I was so amped for this movie after the first ten minutes. Yeah. I had some I I had some logistical issues uh overall with that initial escape. I also found it really interesting that he has a chupacabra named Antonio, but I was <laughs> but I was all in on this. I totally agree. This to me was really creative, interesting use of magic because people aren't just going to vada cadaver the shit out of each other. Sometimes they are going to dip a fast moving, festral drawn carriage into the water and drown some bitches. I thought it was, I thought it was worthy of a good prison escape scene. And I liked the depiction of magic involved. And I, I like that piece of Grindelwald's backstory filled in for me. That was great. Yep. Totally agreed. Third one was, Something I thought we might see based on the trailer, but I was excited, was what does Dumbledore see in the mirror of Erised? Because in the books, he says, Harry asks him, and he says, I see myself holding a pair of thick woolen socks. Yeah. And then I love the way she writes this. It's something about like Harry's on his way back to his dormitory, and he considers, mm, Dumbledore may not have been entirely truthful with me. And then he thinks, yeah. but then again... It was a very personal question, which it is. It's literally the per- a person's, their heart's desire. It's the most personal question. And it was cool. And I think you probably could have predicted this, that he would see Grindelwald in the mirror opposite to him. But that was, I, to me, that was one of the more effective scenes in the movie. I thought it was really cool. So I actually think, I think it's even, so I think you're totally right. But I think it's even more interesting because it, to me, it, it asks, it begs the question, why is he not seeing Ariana? Why is he not seeing his family all hold together? And I think there's, there are several interpretations and I've heard this debate brought up a little bit. Uh, my interpretation is that he is still kind of immature. Like the Dumbledore we're seeing here has not clearly fully come to terms with his relationship with Grindelwald or his role in the for the greater good stuff. He ha- He's not over that. He's not the fully fleshed out, fully adult Dumbledore who we see at 150 years old or whatever the hell he is later. So I like to think that at 40 or 45 or whatever he is here, he's seeing what is still kind of a childish dream. And in a few years after he's kind of processed what he's been through a little bit more, then he would no longer see Grindelwald and he would see his family hold together. I That's my interpretation, but I like that this scene enhanced our, our thinking on Dumbledore from the binary, he was a boy who fell in love with this guy and then got in too deep and then uh, a fully grown old-ass wizard who regretted it all and wished his family were back together. There is clearly a transition there that I like that I like in this. 
No, I agree. And I think what's bothering some people about this movie is that it's kind of shedding more light on the modeled parts of Dumbledore's past, which I happen to love. I think it's cool that we're seeing this transitional Dumbledore. And I also think the mirror probably shows different things in very short amounts of time. I think maybe in this point in his life, he's who knows, maybe, maybe still a little envious of what Grindelwald's doing right now. Exactly. We don't know. And that, and that would fit really nicely, I think, with our broader understanding of Dumbledore. Like, Dumbledore A, Dumbledore B is not a realistic way of interpreting him, and I think we've never been led to that by the way JK has written it, but I think that's sort of the simplified version people have gone with, and I like that this is sticking with the more complicated version. Agreed. Yeah. I, and also what I like about this version of Dumbledore is that he's kind of a dick and Dumbledore in the books is still kind of a dick, but it comes out always. Yeah. But it comes out kind of in, in little spurts here and there. I think this Dumbledore like kind of knows it. He's like got a little swag about him, which I really like. I mean, this is this, I know this is certainly not an original thought. This is the best Dumbledore who's been put on screen. This is Dumbledore. I actually think this is exactly what I picture Dumbledore being. He's Jude Law is pretty much pitch perfect. He's everything he's done so far. Every little character note has been exactly how I would picture my Dumbledore doing things. I I love him. I I love Jude Law and I'm very, very excited to see him flex a little more with this character that we're getting like, I don't know. We're getting to know Dumbledore really, really well. I like it. So, yeah. Anyways, especially if he keeps wearing those dope ass suits. <laughs> I do. Ali just pointed this out that she was talking to someone or reading something about like wondering like when this transition occurred between two three piece yeah. suits and like this like purple spangly ass robe. Yeah, he <laughs> went from like Frank Sinatra to Elton John very yeah. quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's that's an unanswered question that I'd love to see answered as well in this series. <laughs> The fashion crimes of Dumbledore. Yeah. What are you wearing? All right. Number six. <laughs> this one, this is more of an, uh, I guess, kind of a nitpick. Maybe we'll debate. Number six. How old is Minerva McGonagall? Uh, this is a mistake. It is a this mistake. Is a, this right? is a mistake. I, so I, I saw somebody putting out the different theories. And once again, I love all these charitable, interesting interpretations. This was JK Rowling wrote a script without this reference somebody said hey we should put McGonagall in uh and then she goes oh okay cool and then they did it and they didn't think any more of it I frankly and I don't think you're gonna bring this up later so my much bigger issue is that this is the Professor McGonagall I think we think who says uh transfiguration is not a punishment and then fixes that girl's mouth and then redoes it it's so against everything she's ever been as a character, and I like, you know, it played for a laugh in the theater, but that's not her at all. No. I, this was a huge, this was a huge strategic error. Well, so I did a little looking into it just to see if it was possible to spin this, but, so, she's at Hogwarts, presumably teaching. Yeah. The youngest she could possibly be is 17, right? Assuming that they bend the rules and let her teach there. Right yeah, after she's graduated, sure. fine. Yeah, the year we she's know a, in this, she's a genius. Yeah, we happen to know in this flashback because the movie takes place in 1927. The flashback is 10 years prior. We know this is 1917. 
mm-hmm. which would put McGee at her birthday being in 1900. Which, and now we also know that Harry Potter, the first seven books, take place between 1991 and 1998, putting McGonagall at a, a keen 98 years old in Deathly Hallows. <laughs> Which, but we also know she said in, I think, Order of the Phoenix, she's in her 60s. She said it. She, oh, she said does it to say Umbridge. Uh, yes, yeah, Umbridge says something about, like, you know, I can fire your ass or whatever. And she says, I am a woman in my sixties. Like it's, I forget exactly how it comes oh up. God. It might not be that. I, I may have made that up, but there's an interaction she has. Or maybe she says she, how long she's been teaching or something that would, she her. makes, she makes enough of a reference that this actually, you're being too generous. It's not possible. She'd have to be negative years old. The only, so reason- it is not possible. Oh, okay, cool. The only reason I was going to let it, I was going to be very generous in my assessment was that, in Deathly Hallows, it's not clear if this is factual or not, but Auntie Muriel says, give me that chair, I'm 107 years old. Which begs the question, like, what's the life expectancy for a wizard? It's longer. They make they make a joke, too, about Dumbledore. What's Dumbledore? He, he's a, uh, about 140. Looks, looks good for 140. Like, there's a, there's a movie scene where they do that, and... I don't know if that's explicitly in the books. I seem to recall it's not, but I think it's kind of generally accepted that they live, call it, time and a half. Okay. So, is it entirely unreasonable that she could be around 100 in Deathly Hallows? No, if it weren't... That part, no, if she hadn't specifically said. That's the problem. That's where we run into the issues. They said it. That... That's an unforced error. I don't like it. I believe the kids call it. Yeah, that's tough. That's a tough look. Yeah, tough tough look for our guy, Jameson. That's right. <laughs> Number five is a question I really like uh, that was presented to me by Dylan. And I have to confess, not confess, but it had not occurred to me even for a second while watching the movie. And he was, like, so sure that this is what happened. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. So as soon as we walked out of the theater... Dylan said, I don't remember what he said exactly, but basically the effect was, wow, that's crazy. Queenie must have been imperialist. Yeah. To me, I, and I thought it never even occurred to me that that had been the case. And I much prefer this story arc if she wasn't. And I think it would kind of be (laughs) bailing on one of the only parts of this movie that I really loved if she were to have been imperialist. But I wanted to get your thoughts on it. So I've heard some interesting stuff about this. I've heard the very elaborate theories. I'll give you my own. My interpretation is very simple and somewhat cynical, but just simple. So J.K. Rowling is very political and has become more political in recent years. And as you and I and we all know, the world has has changed a lot in the last couple of years. There have been a lot of extremist parties that have risen throughout the world, and particularly in Europe, which importantly is where J.K. Rowling lives. So extremist parties have, have risen and there's been a lot of people who kind of look like men and women on the street who have joined these extremist parties. And I think J.K. Rowling is attempting to take one of our characters who she built up a lot of trust and love with for us as viewers and say, look, see, the person that you go to church, school, work with could support one of these extremist parties. It's important that we be vigilant. So that's all I think this was. I don't think that there's a big elaborate imperious 
thing. I think J.K. Rowling kind of pigeonholed this. I want to show how a regular person gets caught up in this thing. I think that's what she was doing. That said, I don't think it totally flopped. I like you actually liked this, but I think that that was the motivation. Yeah, I to me, this is probably my favorite part of the whole movie. I thought it was really cool that when presented with this argument in a certain way to emphasize how it could benefit her and do away with something she doesn't care about and frame it in a, in a, in a, in a message that she could understand that a person could be convinced to do something like this. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of, it's like you were saying, some of the kind of political movements that have happened in Europe in the past and how a message when spun a certain way, you know, can appeal to certain senses. Like, can, and to me, like, it didn't seem that unreasonable. Like, she, what, like, she loves this guy, and she's being told in her society that not only can she not marry this guy, she can't even interact with him. Like, yeah. of course she would be tempted to follow a person that is telling her that's wrong. And in a way, yeah. like, obviously the methodology that they're going to go through to, to achieve those ends is wrong, but the sentiment is not. And Grindelwald, no. and Grindelwald doesn't believe that she should be able to marry a muggle, probably. But that's not how he frames it to her. And so I, here's, so, yeah, sorry, continue. Well, I was just, I'll wrap it up. I, I, to me, like, this is one of my absolute favorite parts of the movie because it, yeah. it made a ton of sense to me. Like, I, I really understood her anger and fear. And it, it just, it's, that was like the only part of the movie really where I was like, emotionally connected to something a character was going through i i loved it and i hope that she wasn't imperious for that reason i totally agree i hope she wasn't imperious i think it really worked i think that that argument appealed very nicely to her and i think it does speak to the personal motivations that lead people to kind of forego the feelings of others is their personal considerations i also think that this scene didn't wouldn't have, I think the movie would not have held together even as well as it did if this speech were not so effective, but man, it was. I think that Johnny Depp killed this scene. It worked so well because this speech was persuasive. That vision of people marching alongside that train and then the atomic bomb exploding, that, that was my favorite part of the movie. It just, it put in pretty stark relief, the stakes, uh, and I thought it made a lot of sense as an argument. As an argument, we are the beings who could prevent something like this from happening. And so this is where I cross into a little bit of an issue with the movie portrayal of Grindelwald, though. Is And you said it. You said, I don't think he believes that a muggle and a, and a wizard or witch should be able to have a relationship. And you're right, based on the movie, but my issue is I think that the book version might be okay with that and might even support that because the book version at least as far as we know we don't get all the information i think he really did believe in for the greater good and that to me was the differentiation between grindelwald and voldemort voldemort is just a power hungry asshole that's kind of all he is is he wants power and he wants power for power's sake i think grindelwald really is a misguided idealist in the books Whereas in this, they're kind of turning him into a little bit more of a blood purity maniac, which I don't think is his thing so much. So I thought that this scene hung together best when I believed that he really kind of, 
he bought these lines of argumentation that he was he was throwing out there. Clearly, he was using them to manipulate people. But I think that the book Grindelwald kind of believes that if a witch wants to marry a muggle, that's fine, so long as the witch is in charge, because she should be the one protecting all of humanity. So that's kind of, that's where I, this scene walked the tightrope, and there were a couple times where I thought it kind of, it didn't work totally, but that's in my interpretation of the character when it works best. Yeah, that's a subtle, but like really important distinction. I think you're right, the the, the movie is pretty unambiguously what we just talked about. Like, I don't, I think he does believe in general wizards are superior to muggles, but he he even says something like he does say the not different, but whatever, not disposable, but of a different disposition, like something like something like to the effect of like their labor. (laughs) And yeah, and that's not as clear in the books, but you're right. I did. I actually, I really liked the, not the whole finale, but the speech I thought was really well put together, especially the World War II imagery I thought was cool. Yeah. But I don't know. And I would hope that this will be a big part of the coming movies, the Queenie thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Number four, why Newt? Like, why? And I, I think that we're going to understand more <laughs> uh... about why Dumbledore knows that it needs to be Newt to do this. Maybe just trusts him. There's probably some kind of personal relationship there. I'm fine with that. My question is more like, why, why in the beginning of the movie is the Ministry of Magic interested in hiring him specifically to hunt credits down? Like, I don't know if he has any like credentials that would make him particularly well suited to this task. Can I offer a flippant answer? Because it's a movie about Newt, and I know that's such a dumb, that's such a dumb thing to say, but this is a this is a thing that bothers me a lot when I watch movies because. Oft, oftentimes that's the only internal logic that these movies can achieve when you ask this question. Cause this is a question I ask myself a lot. Like, what, why couldn't they have just had 10 guys do the thing? Or why couldn't they have done this? And a lot of times it's just like, cause it's a movie about the, the, that person. And that's kind of how I feel about this. I hope they, I hope they stop me from feeling this way. But to this point, I just feel like it's Newt cause it's a movie about Newt. No, sort I think, of. no, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. My question, I guess then, more broadly, why is this a movie about Newt? <laughs> like, yes, that's, well, that's the other question. Like, cause it was the only way for her to not seem like a money grubbing asshole. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> but I don't think JK's an asshole, but. No, she's not. It's, yeah. I don't think she is at all. I don't believe that in any part of my body, but I think in the initial pitch meeting, I think to get, even for her to secure yeah. this kind of budget, she probably had to come up with some way of seeming like she wasn't just doing this to make more yeah. money. I just, this is my broad thing with this whole series is I want to see the movie where new has to go to a village and protect them from uh, a beast that turns out ends up being super misunderstood. I want to see him flex his knowledge of magical beasts. I don't want to see it like as a throwaway little misadventure on our way to a, a Grindelwald movie. Like the, the way that they shoehorned beast into this movie really kind of irked me. And yeah, I think it made more sense in the first movie when it was revealed at the end, like, hey, this is going to be a prequel series. 
And then in this movie, it just felt like every ten, every twenty minutes, they were like, "Well, you know, we sh- we could probably fit in some beasts here." It was like, "What are we doing?" And like, so that's like my my larger question is like, why Newt? Like, why is he here? Because I love Newt. He's on. A, he's like my favorite part, and I love Eddie Redmayne. I think he's. I think he's. His performance is incredible. He's just, so good. Don't yeah. I? I keep. I. I don't want to let that pass by. He is so good. Yeah. Oh, he's he's incre- he's really good. I, was it you I was texting? Like he's like he gives you this like Emma. Is he on the spectrum? Like is he somewhere? Yeah. Like we don't know. And he's he's really good. And I find him compelling. Yes. I just wish like this was actually a movie about him instead of a movie yeah. about someone else through him. You know what I mean? Yep. I yeah. I I feel I feel like Eddie Redmayne must feel a little bit deceived. And he would, I think, be right to feel that way. Probably. The good news is he only has to do three more of these, probably. That's what we think. But he probably <laughs> is contractually obligated to do as many as they want him to do. Yeah. That's the, uh, that's another, <laughs> I guess one of my broader issues with this movie is that, like, if you remove it from the chronology, this movie's fine because, the series is probably fine because it starts with who is Credence and it ends with Okay, we think we know who Credence is and Grindelwald has escaped and is starting to amass followers. Like, you don't need a movie to get between those two points, right? Like, I think that, yeah, I don't know if this movie was necessarily at, necessary at all, but yeah, that's also why is it 1927 and we've still got 18 years to go until the thing? Holy shit. Saddle up, dude. Saddle up. 18 years until right. the finale. Right. 18. So, 18 years. That's almost two decades. That's one, that's one percent of Minerva McGonagall's life. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. I have a couple honorable mentions, nitpicks that were just nitpicks that I don't really want to consider unanswerable yeah. questions. Um, when they, first of all, Nick, I don't know why Nicola or Nicholas Flamel was in this movie, <laughs> but. And that's he, just that's that's unanswerable. Didn't need to be no reason. And then on top of that, he's like, he's like, well, I'm a what's the word? A um, not a metallurgist, but a alchemist. An alchemist. It's like, okay, cool. That's a, a branch of magic we don't know a lot about. It's like, but look at this crystal ball. It's all your friends. It's them right here. That's not how crystal yeah. balls work in this universe. That was annoying. No. When this, this really is just nitpicky and I was already in a bad mood is when Newt shows up to the freak show aftermath, like the next day and like put some powder on the ground and it like completely recreates everything uh, that happened. What? Yeah. What I the was fuck? very bothered. I was very bothered by that. That's a different movie in a different world once again don't i don't get super hung up on the magic all the time that was like a different universe that bothered me it just didn't make sense it's not it's not the way magic works in this world nope and the last one is just how the fuck does the french ministry of magic operate where newt and tina show up to access highly classified information and they say i'm theseus this is my fiance. Please let us in. And they do? Newt is clearly not his brother, and, like, everyone should know what Theseus' fiance looks like. Like, I'm just, I'm really confused by that. Yeah. Do you so, have an explanation? Was... 
And then no. I was like, and then I was like, oh, this this lady knows she's gonna let him in. She's gonna trap him. Yeah. So that's what I thought was happening. But she doesn't let those cats in until after Lita shows up. So I also thought that that old lady was Bethilda Bagshot. For she looked like the dead Bethilda Bagshot. <laughs> she did look like she was already dead. She looked like the, and she wasn't, which was weird. She looked like the white faced women from series of unfortunate events. If you watch that show, Ugh, but yeah, anyways. I didn't, like, yeah. what the... It was just like, well, this movie's getting kind of long. Yeah, I, let's speed this thing along. Speaking of which, <clears throat> we're at, like, 55 minutes. So... I know. Number three. The, maybe the, you have an answer for this already, and I'm just confused. If Grindelwald... And maybe we can tie this together with number one a little bit. If Grindelwald knows that Dumbledore has a long-lost brother... Okay. And he needs to find him to kill Dumbledore. Okay. Yep. What the? What was he doing the whole first movie when he was interacting with Credence this whole time and didn't know who he was? Yeah. So this is um this falls into my list of why does Credence need to be the thing? So I think that the idea of an obscurus and obscurial and all that crap is so cool, so neat. Awesome. Love it. Movie worthy. No question. It's an incredible, uh, this is just such a great idea from JK. One of her finest, I actually would, would venture to say. Yeah. It's such a great idea. The damage wrought by keeping who you are inside. There are so many different parallels you can make in the real world that it are so true. If you know anybody who's kept a secret or tried to repress something, yep. it, it wreaks great damage. Great idea. Now, the deepening of this thing with the, the blood pact, it's called, I think, right? Blood yeah. pact, which is kind of a lame name, but we will go past that. But really, okay, that makes it seem like, all right, Grindelwald had to find somebody to defeat Dumbledore. Kind of makes me wonder about the logic of the blood pact, a la the unbreakable vow, because isn't it violating the spirit of the blood pact? But at, at any rate, it introduces the idea that he needs to bring in a third party. Why, Credence? Why do we have to go through all of this hemming and hawing and difficulty? Why is Credence the only thing that can take Dumbledore down? I get it. Dumbledore is exceptionally powerful. Why not recruit an army of 6,000 6, proto-Death Eaters and have them surround him and fire Avada Kedavra at him all at once? I know this is a silly situation I'm drawing, but... It just makes me wonder why this whole credence thing needs to be the driving force behind this particular plot. I'm I'm actually fine with this concept of Dumbledore's match can only be someone of his blood. Someone just someone like a chosen one type thing, like with Harry. I obviously it's not the same, but I'm actually okay with that. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is the what I believe is just a like a lack of foresight in that if Grindelwald knew that he had a brother or a long lost sibling, then like why was he so surprised to find out that it was Credence in the first movie? Like he was actively searching for Credence's like a an obscurial that he didn't know where it was. I was like I don't know. Like the whole logic of it to me is a little bit confusing does is, am i am i just confusing myself or is this a real thing do you think so i think that this problem only truly exists if the scenario you're laying out is the case 
And obviously this relates to number one, which is I don't think that this is the case, that he knows of some long lost brother. So that, that to me is, is the thing. I, we, I think my take on this, which we can tie into number one when we get there is. I think we're of the same thinking. I think that this is a lie. I think that it's, I think it's a lie. I have heard people say that they think it's, uh, Ariana Dumbledore's Obscurial, Obscurus, I don't remember which is which. The Obscurial, mm-hmm. I think, is the thing, and she's the Obscurus, I don't remember. Has, has latched on to somebody else. And so, then it's like, he's, because he does say, and I think this was interesting, I restore this name to you. Or I, I, I give you this name. Like it's, he doesn't say you are. He kind of says I'm giving you this title. So those are really the two leading theories. It's either a lie or it's the spirit of Ariana Dumbledore latched onto something else. And if either of those things is the real thing, then this problem you're presenting isn't as much of a problem. Okay. That's, see, I, it raises other problems. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of liked the idea that he's just lying to a, a very powerful person to motivate him yeah. because yeah. it presents down the road an opportunity for Credence to get really fucking pissed. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of pisses me off as a movie fan that I was told that there I obviously wasn't told by anybody, but the movie started telling me that there was a big thing coming. Yeah. And if the big thing that was coming is a lie, this is kind of annoying but I actually really believe it as a viewer. I'm like, yeah, that makes, okay, I'm down with that. It may, it would actually be the most logical choice for all of the characters involved. Right. And it would explain why in the first movie, he knows there's an obscurial in America somewhere. Yeah. And he needs to find it, but he doesn't have any details. Yeah, I could, I could buy that. In fact, yeah. it seems incredibly likely. Okay. Yeah. Then this is not so much of a problem. But in the other case, but in the case that he's presenting, where he knew he knew of a brother that Dumbledore had, it doesn't make any sense why he's looking for like a, a girl in. Yes. And in, in, uh, our in friend York. Credence, you would think, would be like, "Well, this doesn't make sense." But I don't think Credence is thinking very clearly. That's true. But your but your scenario is true. Like even if it doesn't screw with us as viewers, it should ping. It should raise some red flags in the mind of Credence. Who's presumably not a dummy. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Credence should be having these kinds of questions that we're having. Yes, as, in, like, as annoying as like, is like, Credence he is like, shouldn't wait. be that cool with this. Credence is like, wait a minute. Three months ago, this same guy was looking for a girl in New York and treated me like trash. But now yeah. he's telling me that I'm Dumbledore's brother. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Credence should be wondering some stuff. Get woke, Credence. Yeah. All right. Number two, and we're kind of, we've kind of already talked about number one, so this might be our, our last one. Something I'm very interested to find out is we have point A, Nagini, and we have, so this woman <laughs> who hangs out with Credence, and we have point oh, C, Nagini, where her dome gets lopped off by Neville. I want, I want at least points B through F. Like, what happens here? I'm, like, very interested to see how she ends up with our friend Tom Riddle. And I think this is probably something that will get answered pretty satisfactorily. Yes. So this is one that I don't want to remain a mystery because, and this falls into the, I'm not sure JK knew what she was getting herself into when she did this. 
So because Nagini was cast and and kind of talked about as such a big part of this movie and this series, it's cl- I think it's clear she intended to answer all of this, and this wasn't purely meant as a fan service even or McGonagall-esque appearance. So I don't think this was a situation where she just kind of messed stuff up and that's it. I think she thought about this enough that she is ready to deal with the consequences. But I'm not sure she totally understood how much this was going to screw us up where we're thinking, so Dumbledore wanted to chop off the head of a person? The issue with that is not that Dumbledore is anti-killing. He's not. He He's not fully anti-killing and he's definitely not anti-killing horcruxes like he's cool with that but he's also big into offering people choice yeah because i i know he's not the person who tells harry i believe it's hermione that remorse is the only way to undo a horcrux but i think it he would have if he had seen it he'd have been very proud of harry for in the books uh telling tom to repent and probably would be less cool with killing a person who is under a werewolf-like curse without offering them a chance to be re-transformed or cured or something. So that's my that's my thing. Is I think that because J.K. opened up that line of issue, she's gonna have to really answer the crap out of this. Yeah, I I think. There are two likely scenarios. One is that Dumbledore doesn't know, which is possible. And and in our conversation about the fuzziness of actual life, would actually be pretty reasonable. Like that's fine. Yeah, it's fine if they show this story and it's never like Dumbledore is not omniscient. If he doesn't know this, that's fine. The second one that I hope ends up being the case is that Dumbledore does know, but in his mind. There's something that he witnesses down the road that we hopefully get to witness where she's made a very clear choice and has had her chance. Like, hopefully yeah. this isn't a thing where she turns into a snake and then Riddle is like, hey, a snake! And they just yeah. happen. Like, I would think that probably at some point she casts her lot with... But then, like, yeah. like but by the time... That... Although... Yeah. It, it feels like... She... I don't know. It feels like the timelines don't line up, but... They don't really line up because in the books, in the books, he says he met a snake in the forests. And as my recollection is, we're led to believe he just met a snake and befriended it. Right. During his banishment in the forests. Isn't that sort of our, that was our, our, how we were supposed to interpret that, I believe. That's kind of how I was operating this whole time. At least in my recollection, this was spelled out clearly enough that some scenario where they start doing dark deeds together long before that is hard to envision. I guess, I guess there could be a, a scenario in which a young Tom Riddle and a medium age Nagini have some misadventures while she's in human form. He doesn't know she's a, whatever this is called, maledictus, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then just sees her in the forest and is like, oh, there's something about the spirit of this, this creature that calls to me. Like, the that's thing- actually, I'd be kind of okay with that scenario. That's 
I would, a reasonable explanation for how that works. I would be somewhat into a scenario where, because she would have to be really old by the time that they yes. interacted. I would be into some scenario where she became some kind of mother figure to him because he never had anyone like that. And yeah. then she turned into a snake and then he kept her around. Do I think that's what's going to happen here? I'm kind of of the thinking that this was just, I, I don't, I don't know. I hope not. It feels like, like, well, now you know something about Nagini before she was a snake and it's not entirely clear why she is now like hanging out. That's kind of what I think. Cause I, I really, maybe I'm clinging to a false recollection, but I think we got it like a from yeah. the, from the, horse's mouth like i think voldemort told us this quinn will correct me but i think he tells us like i met her in the forest and i don't really see what his motivation would be to lie except for the fact that jk rowling hadn't thought of the idea of a maledictus yet and just came up with this after yeah so that's an unanswered question and we'll see how that works out and it will be answered yeah number one was the aurelius thing and i think we kind of talked about it yeah We'll see. I'm with you. I think the Grindelwald is lying to him, and I think it makes for kind of a nice redemption arc for Credence. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we kind of need him to come back. Like, we like him enough. I, I don't know why we like him, because well, he's, he's kind of a, a twerp, but... I don't really, but I, I think that it's important that he is redeemed, because that's, like, kind of the the spirit of these novels, right? Like, this kid was abused and forced to repress himself, and it's kind of a bummer of a yeah. story if eventually he... Like, I was bummed at the beginning of the first one when it looked for a minute that he was just dead because he was misunderstood by all these people. I mean, I guess it happened to Ariana, but it would be nice to have some kind of redemptive arc for him, and I think almost necessary, so. Agreed. And I have no, I have no real additions. I don't think it makes a ton of sense to reorder this. This is a little bit more of a breakdown, so I think I'm very happy with the list as you've put it together. Okay, well... I'm glad we got to dissect this. I yeah. know, After talking through this, my opinion has not changed. I didn't like this movie very much, but there were parts of it that I enjoyed. Can I, can I give you my? Can I give you my thoughts on? I want. I want to give you a homework assignment, and my homework assignment to you is to do the exact opposite of my viewing, which was my viewing was love the crap out of the good parts, and then watch it and see how they don't work. Instead, you had that, like, I fully got taken out of the moment experience right away. Now go back and watch it and focus on the really good moments. Think about why they don't hang together, but just focus on some of those good moments and just say, you know, I want to appreciate the stuff that was good about this. All right, I'll try it. And I will say, like, there were parts of it that were so cool. Like, I loved... I was cracking up that whole, um, his relationship with that big, like, Chinese cat creature thing. Oh, that was great. Love the that. Cat love toy. that. I also love the don't say salamander thing was incredible. Funny. I yeah. I really liked the the Kelpie scene. I like Yeah. I there were parts of it that, and like the visually it was incredible. Like it, these movies always are, but it looked a lot better than the first one too, I thought. I yeah. liked the look of this a lot better. Yeah. It just uh, for a, it was just a movie that ultimately I think was just too caught up and too too crowded and too confused and just just too much and uh, I think it wasn't able to for me to escape some of my pre-existing uneasiness about what this series is from like a meta perspective but so whatever I'm still looking forward to the next one so 
Yep. Amen. All right. Let's wrap this very long podcast up. Would you like to send the people out? Or should I recap first? Yeah. Are we going to recap or you want to just talk about stuff? Yeah, I'll recap it real quick. Top 10 unanswered questions in Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Number 10, why was Newt expelled from Hogwarts? Anyways, how did that work out? Number 9, who did Lita, who was Lita talking to at the end when she confessed that she did love them before she was killed for some reason? Number 8. Also, why did that happen? Yeah, what the fuck? Number 8, how do Confundus charms in this universe work? again or was that just kind of a slip number seven is yusuf still under an unbreakable vow after failing to kill credence do we care no number six how old is professor mcgonagall again not quite clear number five was queenie imperious or not that's a big one number Let's four hope not yeah i hope not number four why newt why is why newt i Number three, why didn't Grindelwald know to look for Credence in Fantastic Beasts and where to find them? Number two, what is Nagini's thing? Number one, who is Aurelius Dumbledore? We will find out. Yes, we sure will. That is that. And now, Mike, would you like to send the people out? Yeah, I, so instead of doing our uh, little pre-recorded funky music time, we wanted to send you off with a little, little uh, reminder of how you can talk to us. So as Kyle and I like to remind you, we are on several different channels, all the major social channels. So we've got Facebook, we've got an, an, an Instagram, not yet, but we do have somebody who may be helping us with an Instagram. Stay tuned, people. Ooh, we have a Twitter, a little teaser. Oh. Uh uh, uh, I say I can't make any career announcements on this pod, but somebody who may have a little extra free time on her hands, maybe would help us with Instagram. Uh, we have a Twitter at top ten km. I, along with our dear friend Kyle, will be pumping up our Twitter presence uh, going forward. We've not done a great job with it to this point, but we will be doing more twittering. So please check us out on Twitter. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah. I'd like to add to that. We have an active, not a Twitter poll, but we have an active Twitter request. We're still taking uh, submissions for the best musical album of 2018. We've gotten some great responses so far on that. We have, and we will be following up. So your work will not, uh, will not go unrewarded. And please check us out wherever you listen to podcasts. We are on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple podcast app. I think we're on Spotify. We're on Spotify. Spotify. We're on Google Play. Yeah, we're on Google Play. Yeah. Uh, all, all, all those major things. And then I, I, I'd just like to wrap up by saying that our theme music was composed by Kevin Cloud, and our artwork was designed by Aaron Sand. And she, unlike us, is on Instagram. She got all sorts of cool stuff. You can take a look at. <laughs> I think that's it, Mike. So I think uh, we'll probably do this again next week. I think we will. All right. See you later, buddy. Bye. Peace.